Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And this podcast, I always look forward to the podcast. I've been really looking forward to this one because our guest is someone who shares with me a passion for the political interview, something I've been obsessed with for a long time, and so has he. He's Rob Burley. He's just written a book, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? And its framing is the political interview. And there's no one better place to write about it and talk about it because he has been editor of programs with the biggest political interviews of recent times and loved the political interview. Rob, from when you were a student. That's when you kind of became hooked on the political interview as a a way of finding out about people, politics, and all the rest of it. I think you were a student at Nottingham. Well, yeah, that was the, that's that's true. Not, there was a very particular moment when I was a student in Nottingham. But um, actually, I think it came a bit before then, because as I talk about in the book, and I think people of, of a certain age will remember this, uh, you know, in the 70s, growing up there weren't many options about what you could consume uh, on television um and inevitably one found oneself watching things that you might not think were children sort of the children would be interested in and i would find myself putting on weekend world as a as a kid really you know in in the late 70s or the early 80s not really understanding what was being said but kind of enjoying something about it and trying to decode it um and so over time obviously i would begin to understand what they were talking about um Although, you know, Brian Walden, the way he would speak and the way the politicians, these great figures would engage was was still sort of quite forbidding to a teenager. But by the time I got to university, there was a moment that really was, I think, the sort of high watermark of the political interview in in, in Britain. Uh, And that was the interview that took place in 1989 um, between Margaret Thatcher and Brian Walden on a show called The Walden Interviews, which was a successor show to Weekend World. Weekend World being a show that has been established in the early 70s by uh, John Burt, who went on to be the BBC Director General. And this is early on in your book, an, an analysis of this interview, which I remember vividly as well. So uh, Thatcher in her third term, her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, resigns dramatically. And Brian Warden has an interview with Margaret Thatcher on the Sunday following the resignation. Very feverish. But as you chronicle also, pressure on Brian Warden, who was known to be a fan of Thatcher's. Um, and so was it going to be a soft interview at this epic moment in her career? And there she was live with him on the Sunday for about 45 minutes. Over to you. Yes, absolutely. So it's really, it's, the backstory between the two people is, is is fascinating. And I think it really is worth understanding before you think about the interview itself. So Brian Walden had been a Labour MP and he, uh, in, 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 he, was, he became increasingly uh, disillusioned with the Labour Party in the 1970s. And when Mrs Thatcher became uh, the leader of the Conservative Party in 1975, I, I describe it as Brian became Thatcher curious at this point because he could see in her uh, attributes and instincts that he actually shared that were very different to, to the, the, the attributes or the instincts, at least, of the Labour Party. And that was because he was essentially a, a, you know, a grammar school boy, came from a very poor background, who who'd sort of dragged himself up from that situation into 
the situation he was in as an MP um, and who believed in meritocracy and essentially was a prototype sort of Labour convert to Thatcherism before he became this figure we saw on television. In 1977, he was asked to present, he was asked to leave Parliament and come and present a show on ITV called Weekend World to succeed a guy called Peter Jay. Um, <clears throat> now, so, so he had no he had no TV experience, but he was given this opportunity because he had a reputation as a fantastic orator and as a great intellect. So his first guest on his first ever edition of Weekend World presented by Brian Walden was Margaret Thatcher in 1977. And they began a dialogue which we saw in real time between 1977 and 1989 on television about the ideas that underpinned Thatcherism. And although he didn't obviously nail his colours to the mast in those interviews about his own sympathy with her politics this sort of simpatico relationship was qu is quite is quite evident if you watch those programs back and she she used the opportunity on those interviews to really talk about the underpinning of her philosophy and he was sympathetic to that brought it out i think he used he was the first person to use the term victorian values in relation to thatcherism and she then went went and ran with that as an idea um she talked about the only reason we remember the Good Samaritan is because he had money on the show with Brian Walden in one of those editions. So they had this great close relationship. And then in 1983, this is, this is an extraordinary thing which emerged from the research and the work on the book. There'd been a rumour that this has happened, and now I've been able to establish that it did. Um, in 1983, Margaret Thatcher was uh, on the cusp of the election uh, that came in June, I think, of that year. Um, and she had gone to a very famous rally, a, cons a young conservative rally. I don't know if you remember it, Steve, which was Ke Kenny Everett famously saying, um, you know, walking out with an enormous sort of hand, like a, like a big plastic or foam hand, which she was waving around. And he said to this audience of young conservatives, um, let's bomb Russia. Um, let's kick Michael Foot's stick away. And it, so it was very, it was a very naughty and sort of transgressive thing to say by Mike, by Kenny Everett, who was quite an alternative sort of figure. But this this event pumped Mrs. Thatcher up. She was very, very energised by it. They were crying Maggie, Maggie, Maggie to her, and they loved her. And um, she went from there to to record um, a party election broadcast. And the this the script that she received when she was she, um, she showed up to do this was was in her view insufficiently. Uh, exciting and uh, energized and she was in a mood to make it more so so they decided they would junk the script they had and they needed someone else to write a new script and who did they turn to but the man who a few hours earlier that day had interviewed margaret thatcher on television on itv but brian walden and they called him late at night and asked him whether he would come and write at the, the closing party election broadcast in the 1983 election for margaret thatcher and sort of shamefully i think in a way he said yes so he really this shows how close they were intellectually and sort of politically that he was willing to really break a, a kind of cardinal rule of, uh, of of journalism and take part in this political uh, you know broadcast write it for her make write the appeal to the country to give her a second term which is quite an extraordinary thing for him to have done so that shows how close they were and in the, in the years that followed, they remained close. Um, Weekend World ended, but he still saw Thatcher. He went to see her in number 10. He wrote sort of very uh, uh, positive pieces and interviews for about her for the Sunday Times. And then when he got, he, and then he got his show back, a new show called The Warden Interviews. And anyway, this all led up to this moment in 1989. 
her chancellor has resigned. It's actually a pre-recorded interview on the Saturday morning, two or two days later. And all the pressure in the newspapers anyway, the discussion, particularly in the Independent that morning, was not about her and how she would perform, but about whether Brian, given this closeness, which everybody in the sort of in the sort of Westminster village and the lobby and the, the media pack knew about, would he deliver the sort of reckoning that it seemed she was due at this moment? Her, you know, her greatest political crisis, her, this, this great titan who'd been by her side, Nigel Lawson, had gone. And she had to explain how she'd let that happen and what that meant for her government. And the pressure was all on Brian. And those that worked with him, I've spoken to at length about this, and who, and this is all relayed in the book, discussed the fact that this was a choice he had to make between his instincts as a friend and as somebody who politically was set, was was um, uh, sympathetic to her and his duties as a journalist. Different people who worked on it say it was a struggle or it wasn't a struggle for him. Some say it was very clear he was always going to do what he did do, which was actually really put her on, on the spot for 46 minutes and reveal, and this is where I, I was watching it as a student, reveal for the first time, and I don't know if you think this, Steve, for the first time that I, I remembered seeing her seem vulnerable, uh, like there was a chink in the armour, and Brian Walden had revealed this, and he had dared to say, some people think, and this was an idea that was quite prevalent at the time about Thatcher, that you're off your trolley. There's something a bit sort of mad about her, which was an extraordinary thing to say on television. And all of this created a, a, a you know an atmosphere around her of crisis, built the crisis further. And then within weeks, the first leadership challenge to her, which came in 1989, uh, was, 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 you know, took place. And then a year later, she was gone. Uh, by the way, one of the, one of the final points, Steve, they never spoke again. No, no. Having been so close, it was, uh, an extraordinary interview. And, um, uh, I remember a couple of other interviews that he did. I mean, it's important to remember, as you say, Rob, when he was a politician, he was one of the great orators. Uh, I, I saw him speak a couple of times. He was spellbinding. Um, and he took some of that into the studio, which made the interview so compelling. I saw him interview Tony Benn in the early 19. 80s, and obviously Ben was on the other side of the Labour Party to where Warden had been. Um, yeah. And I thought, and, and yet there was an empathy. Warden was fascinated by Ben as another orator who could frame arguments. And although he challenged Ben, it was done with some degree of recognition of Ben's qualities. And it was extraordinary. Again, uh, compelling theatre. And that kind of got you into the political interview from the outside. Um, did, did you meet Warden out of interest? I've ne I, never, I never did. I mean, I, like, I, I knew people, when I ended up working at ITV on the successor show to Warden, I knew a lot of people who had worked with him, but I never did meet him. No, I, I, you know, I would love to have met him, but, but that never happened. He came back to the BBC to do a sort of monologue every now and again at Millbank at Westminster. I bumped into him and had some interesting conversations with him. Um, but you then got into this world of um, the political interview. You worked on uh, several programmes, the Dimbleby programme on ITV, um, the, famously the Mar Show for uh, many years, and then with Andrew Neil. And yeah. what's interesting about your book is it's quite hard to work out where the input comes from in, 
in measuring an interview. In other words, you have a huge amount of input into the interviews. You talk about the way you framed the Andrew Marr interviews on a Sunday morning and uh, going through various kind of options, as actually happened with Brian Warden before your time. So when we watch Marr, Neil, or so on, edited by Rob Burley, where's the interview come from, them or you, or is it genuinely a fusion that is impossible to explain, it just happens. It is, it is a fusion. I mean, there are things you can explain about it, but I think that it, it success, successful interviews, um, they're a collaboration between not just me and, and the interviewer, but the, the whole team of people from the researcher who may be digging away to try and find some nugget of information that will illuminate or cause a problem for the, for the guest, um, to the producer who's really got, a, you know, if you're a producer of a political show, in a way it's quite a, it's quite a sort of unpromising pretext, which is that there'll be two people in a room talking and that is it. So how do you sort of, what's the alchemy you produce to turn that into something compelling? Um, so everyone's involved in that process. I mean, really, the, the, the only thing that can stop it happening is if the interviewer doesn't want that to happen. You know, if the interviewer is, is self-sufficient or believes that they know everything and that they don't need to um you know, have any input from from the uh, production staff, but that's extremely rare. And I mean, Andrew Neil, for example, I mean, you you will not meet a, more, a better briefed individual than Andrew Neil on on almost anything you might talk about. So it's not really about, in his case, finding information he doesn't know because essentially he knows it all. Um, he, you know, he's consuming it all all the time at, at, at a level that's uh, that's so detailed. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't benefit from. A certain, a certain framing or guidance that's provided by someone who can maybe step back from that detail and say, well, you know, collaborate with him about what the best things to do are in terms of how best to, to deliver an interview that is successful. So, um, you know, each, the, each interviewer is different, but the best ones recognise that you can help them and that it's collaboration. And Andrew Neil, you know, very generous in that respect. The same, same with, with Andrew Marr, different people that, but they recognise that Emily Maitlis, who I, I say in the book, if, if I was starting a brand new show that was a political current affairs show with some range, then she'd be my choice as to be the person to host it because she had a sort of particular, she has a particular talent, particular range of talents that allows her to excel so you know magnificently. Uh, you know, she's forensic. She's also funny. She's sort of um, open-minded. She's she's all the things you want. So I, I compare her to a footballer of such quality that, you know, you're stunned by them, but, but as a coach, you could still improve them because they're willing to listen. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how it works. And so, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned, you mentioned the idea, there's an idea I had for Andrew Marr. You could, what, one thing you could do, there are, there are any number of things you can do with a political interview. You can ask, you can ask, you can come up with a list of lots of difficult questions based on what's in the newspapers that day. They might produce news lines. They might, they might sort of, tell the viewer something i don't know what it might be depending on how they answer but another way of coming at it rather than just doing that scattergun approach is to say what i call what is the truth so try and sit down and work out what is the truth of the position this person is in the predicament they're in at a given moment when you're interviewing them and what therefore once you know that how can you how can you then construct an interview that um tries to reveal that truth in some way to the viewer um Obviously, truth truth is a contest. They're contested concepts, but you you come up with something you think you can make a kind of theory of the case about a particular interview, and use that as your your kind of guiding 
prison through which you actually see what you do. Um, and, you know, that's something that I think actually people like uh, Andrew Marr thought was a good idea and, it, and, it's, and it's beneficial. It's interesting, actually, while we're on the topic of the interviewers you have worked with, that yeah. uh, some might be quite surprised that given, you know, Andrew Neal's a big personality, people when he edited the Sunday Times were terrified of him and yet actually was happy to be to work with a team to agree on the interview. The one that you say wasn't uh, is Evan Davis, who comes across as a rather mild-mannered figure compared with, say, Andrew Neal. But but he was the one most resistant to uh, collaborating with a team before preparing an interview. Well, I mean, that was my experience. I, I wouldn't want to say that that never happened with other people. Maybe it was a me thing. I don't know. I, mean, I just, I, I just, and the reason it's in the book about that is, is just to show there is a contrast that some people who, who you know, some presenters don't really, like I say, with me anyway, in that case, want to collaborate so much. They're in their own head. That's how they do it. Um, I'd argue that that's not the best way. Um, and by the way, we were still terrified of Andrew Neil. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, um, you know, you're certainly on your metal if you're in a meeting with Andrew Neil. You don't want to say something stupid or, you know, make a mistake because he hasn't got time for that. You know, you've got you've got to be at a certain level. Um, but, yeah, no, I, yes, I mean, it's true that um, I found it frustrating personally with Evan on Newsnight. Um, it was very different with Jeremy Paxman. I mean, Jeremy Paxman, who has this kind of, again, a ferocious reputation, at least based upon his TV persona, was very, very interested in what everybody in the team thought about the interview that we were going to do uh, and would want to really, really collaborate on it and really would take a plan into the into, into that studio based upon something that had been agreed with the editorial people on the programme. So that was, you know, which I think is laudable. And because they, the reason that that happens is they're confident enough to know that you can help them be better and them being better means the programme's better and there's no sort of, you know, I have to do it myself sort of attitude. Have you grappled at all? Uh, you, you, you do in the book, but when you were working with some of these people, this issue of uh, bias. Now, um you know, you mentioned Robbie Gibb, who's now well known as a Tory supporting Brexiteer, and to some extent was when he was at the BBC, because he came from the Tory party. Andrew Neil is a figure on the right. He manages the spectator, etc. Um, others probably, um, Andrew Marr are to, to the left of those figures. Now, are you confident that in inverted commas, this complicated term impartiality was achieved? Um, or do you worry that, say, when Robbie Gibb worked with Andrew Neil, however hard they tried, they came to interviews with a certain set of assumptions, and therefore that will partly frame the way they do an interview? Well, first of all, I think, you know, impartiality, is it achieved? Well, it's certainly striven for. So, you know, we, we tried. It's, it's hard. And the question is, in this climate we have now is, you know, is it worth doing? Do we want to tr keep trying? And I think the answer to that is yes, we should do. But it doesn't mean that it's not difficult. Um, when it comes to individuals, you know, as you mentioned, there's a range of opinion. I mean, you know, as I say in the book, I'm open that I came from a kind of Labour background and was 
you know, my, everyone has political views. My political views were, were on the Labour side. Robbie Gibbs are on the Tory side. Andrew Mars was, as he's you know clear now, is on the left. Andrew Neil we know is on the right. So, you know, you, you know, I think I think there's long. I, I never was never in a situation where there was, and you know, Andrew Neil was pursu- was pursuing a, a political line that lined up with his own personal views. He was interested in an interview that was the most revealing, most difficult, most challenging for the guest at any given moment. You know, he wasn't interested in, you know, he wasn't interested in promoting some ideology that's just not how people who do this stuff are um so you know people are light upon figures who are on the right and say well therefore that proves somehow there was a problem with impartiality but you could say the same for those on the left everyone worth their salt has a view i mean you're a bit weird if you're in political television and you don't have a view about things of course you do but it you know the, the the hard work if you're at the bbc and elsewhere is to is to be impartial, and that is really hard, but you've got to strive for it. And actually, that's where the fun is. And as I say in the book, you know, one of my favourite moments um, when I was starting out was causing trouble for my own side, as it were, in inverted commas, finding ways to do an interview that was difficult for the labour a labour guest on a given week. Because even though that was my private preference, I wasn't. I was more interested in doing a good job than I was in sort of in somehow in helping my side, because to be honest, my work mattered more to me than my, any allegiance I might have in the ballot box, you know, whenever that might come up. You see what I mean? So there's a passion for it. And that's what I, and that's what I try to communicate to all my teams. And I think it's, it's, and I think most people of the BBC are absolutely committed to it. The, uh, in a way, the big figure, you begin with Margaret Thatcher and the Warden interview, but the kind of big figure in your BBC career was uh, Boris Johnson, who yeah. recurs several times <laughs> in the book. Um, but the climactic... Yeah, exactly. Not in a good way. Um, the climactic is his refusal to take part in an election interview <clears throat> in December 2019, and then your decision, joint decision, perhaps with Andrew Neil, to sort of, in his absence, say what you wanted to test him over. Uh, with a long monologue from Andrew Neil, uh, which was an ex- another extraordinary moment in the history of the, the book and the, the television and politics. Um, was that a big call to say, right, he's not going to do it, so we're going to say we wanted to challenge him over his honesty, over his conduct, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think it was a big call. It wasn't just made by me and by Andrew. It was made, you know, at a higher level as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was it was it was talked about. I mean, there was what were our options at that point? It was evident that he was not going to do the interview, despite the fact that his team consistently pretended they would, um, and tried to string us along as long as they possibly could. Um, and, you know, causing a lot of damage to the BBC, um, meaning that the the the, um, the election was essentially unfair because Corbyn had been subject to that interview. They didn't care about any of that, but. How would we then somehow redress that balance? I mean, there was talk about could we do a a program, you know, that explored these issues, like make you know a film that explored these issues and put them out at the same time. That felt difficult too. I mean, it was really it was it was it was unsatisfactory. Whatever we did, we could do nothing and just say he wouldn't appear, but that means he wouldn't pay any sort of price for his behaviour or the, yeah his behaviour essentially, or we could do something. So. I don't know. It was it felt weird and uncomfortable in a funny way to do it because, you know, we were talking about impartiality and it felt like a, a piece of content that was directed at an individual and seemed to be 
essentially critical of that individual without them being there to defend themselves. But of course, that was his own fault. So it felt odd. And I don't think it was really, it really did redress the balance. It did what it did. It was lo- it was watched by a lot of people on Twitter, probably who already were on, you know, didn't like Boris Johnson. I don't think it really probably reached that many people in real voters who might be sort of think, well, that's a bit off that he's so cowardly. The worrying thing, Rob, for those of us who yeah. love the long form interview, yeah. um, is it work for him? I mean, he didn't do the interview and he won a huge majority. Um, and, uh, so, uh, you, it's up to them, isn't it? Whether they want to do it or not and not doing it worked. And it's worrying, isn't it? For those of us who yearn for these long form interviews. Yeah. To- but Steve, why, why is it we yearn for them? Right. That's the thing I think I, I really want to get over is that this is not, this is not something about, you know, I would, oh, I love it. Oh, I do. I really love a long form interview and they're really, they're really entertaining and I enjoy them and we should therefore have them and people should have to come and do our interviews. The reason they matter is because, I mean, Brian Walden actually said it very clearly um, in, in, in the preface to, because actually so so big was that interview with Margaret Thatcher, they actually put a book out of the transcript and he writes a, an introduction to it in which he talks about the, uh, the particular way in which Britain had developed a culture of political interviewing on television that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was challenging um, and effective and important for democracy. Um and, you know, that has been lost. And the reason it matters is what happened to Boris Johnson? What happened to his premiership? It crashed and burned within a few years. Liz Truss took the same route. She, she followed the Johnson playbook. She avoided scrutiny. I mean, her sort of adoption of a, a sort of Thatcherite kind of at least attempt to adopt a kind of Thatcherite persona is ironic in the context of this book because... Mrs. Thatcher was not was not afraid to go out on television and make the case for her change that she wanted to bring. Liz Truss avoided the scrutiny around these very radical ideas she had, and actually that was consequential because a it made it more likely that she would be elected by, by people who had, who weren't aware of the risks of her approach. But b for the success of her approach, if it had had any prospect of any success it would have needed people to have decided that it was the right thing to do, even if there was short-term pain, say, for example, which, which in a way was what Thatcher said. She said, this has to change, and, it's gonna, and she acknowledged it might be difficult. So this is not some sort of minor thing that we just say, oh, it's, it's, it, we like these interviews and we'd like to have them. If we want an effective democracy where politicians who seek the highest office and want to rule over us are going to be held to account effectively – then it's our best weapon. It's the most important thing we can do, in my view. There's there's always been the, the great sort of clamour for TV debates, and they're entertaining. But if you're if you're Boris Johnson, you're in your element in a TV debate because you can you can draw on your muscle memory from you know sort of Oxbridge you know debating society or whatever and Parliament and all those places. But an interview between you and someone of the calibre of Andrew Neil for half an hour on television live or as live, is a test that you can pass or fail. And that should be at the centre of how we approach what we're supposed to be doing on the media side about about democratic accountability and general elections particularly. Instead, we've abandoned it. There's nowhere where it happens anymore, really, apart from we're trying to do it on Sky News. Me and Beth Rigby are trying to do it. Um, but it's, 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 it's a dying art when it was, it, it was our greatest defence against the sort of debacle we've seen in recent years. Yeah. Well, let's now, if we could quite speedily, focus on 
the BBC dimension of all of this because yeah. it seems to me, so Johnson pulled out of that one, but at least the BBC were planning a long-form interview. It seems to me that uh, maybe since you've got, I don't know, but they, they seem to have lost interest. Uh, the Laura Coombsberg Sunday programme, they quite often have seven guests, eight guests. They see the long-form interview... Uh, seems to have gone on the BBC. Is that your impression as well? Absolutely. I mean, which is extraordinary. It's a scandal. I mean, as Andrew Neil says to me in the book, you know, why a public service broadcaster doesn't make that an absolutely central part of what their offer is, is beyond him. I mean, who else is going to do it? Talk about, you know, market failure and, and what the BBC should do to step in, then surely that should be right at the top of the list. But, you know, it. I, I mean, I, it's not about my departure. I, I was one person there. But there's been a what's what's happened, which I think is important, is for lots of reasons. Is there's now a sort of there's now a kind of homogenous news thing at the BBC. You know, programs are sort of folded into news now, um, which essentially is sort of superficial. Oh, this thing's happened, that thing's happened. What's the next thing? Rather than deep analysis and seriousness. Um, and I think that's happened because they you know they sort of they they made cuts because they've had to make cuts and they haven't thought about the impact. Uh, of things like this, it would never enter their minds, I don't think. So, you know, something's been lost in the culture of the BBC, I'm afraid. Yeah, it is a huge loss, um, uh, that. Also, um, you are concerned, I know, um, and you refer to it in the book, about uh, some within the BBC uh, being too willing to fold under pressure from uh, Number 10 uh, in terms of political coverage. There's always been a worry, a problem, which is that if you are involved in politics at the BBC, then you need to have an ongoing dialogue with the government of the day. And this was this was the, this was the case, you know, when it was the Labour government. You'll naturally you'll you'll naturally tend to give more weight and take more seriously their comments and their observations and their complaints than those of an opposition whose whose impact on you seems quite remote uh, and and sort of potentially there in the future, but not there now. So the danger is that you, you end up with a culture where the government can directly influence the output. Um, now, we saw some evidence of this in a piece in The Guardian in March, uh, which revealed some messages that had been leaked from WhatsApp messages that had been leaked from in, inside the BBC, which seemed to, and we can, it was an incomplete picture, but seemed to, seemed to paint that picture of you know, complaints about a certain word being used or, 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 or complaints about the emphasis of coverage then translating to a particular word not being used or a, a decision to change the emphasis of the coverage. Now, it was an incomplete picture because by its nature, this is quite hidden. It's not usually, you know, recorded or, and even if it is recorded, it's often kept under wraps. But I think, you know, you need to be ever vigilant against that. And there is some suggestion from those from those uh, messages that, that that vigilance was, was kind of lacking. Um, but we don't have the full picture, so um, it's, I can't be sure. I mean, it chimes in with anecdotal stuff that I was aware of when I was there. Um, but, you know, that was anecdotal. So it's not it's not an open and shut thing, but it's just it is a big worry. It's the most it's the biggest sort of impartiality danger in a way. And it's not talked about enough is incumbency bias. It's, it's very seductive. Um, and I, I, what I was again, what, one of my concerns was that by turning it into kind of a news machine, and, and not there not being distinct departments that did different things in politics, and you end up with one person, effectively the gatekeeper, 
from you know for 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 Downing Street to the BBC in in in, in politics at BBC Westminster. That's how the structure was has now been built, and that strikes me as dangerous. I mean, why I, I would I would in my programs I would minimise my contact with the people in Number Ten or their spads or whatever. I, I wouldn't really want to speak to them unless I had to because I didn't want them to be in my ear or in the effectively, you know, be able to get a message through. I think in a way that, that something that's even more disturbing, you chronicle it in great detail in your book, is the way the senior management of the BBC have let so many people go. Um, you, yeah. you go into some detail about the departure of Andrew Neil from the BBC. And, yeah. you know, it's just incredible how they did. You've got Emily Maitlis, who you cite really as your ideal interviewer, gone. Um, and, and many others. And you sort of, when I bother to senior managers and raise, they're not bothered. They really aren't bothered. And there seems to be a disconnect between the output and these senior management who have allowed all of you to, to, to go within a space of a very short period of time. And in many cases could have kept the people if they had cultivated them and spoke to them and engaged with them. And that seems to me for the BBC a real danger the gap between senior managers in their own parochial world and those of you who were heavily involved in the output and have now gone. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think it's been, you know, woefully handled. I don't, I don't know that they've had any strategic thinking about what does that, what does that leave you with? I mean, it happens. So obviously it's big, big star presenters. I mean, look at, look at what Emily's done. You know, Emily and John Sopel and Lewis Goodall have gone to global and are producing, a, a, you know, an absolutely a huge hit podcast which covers news and politics on a daily basis. And people are in, you know, in huge numbers consuming that content. So that's not, that can't be great for the BBC. Why would you, why would you sort of be relaxed about that? And then when it comes to these people like me, who are less important than people like Emily, but you know, it's easy to cut managers because that's attractive in theory. But when you take out experience and people who can maybe guide others who are younger than them or more junior than them through to be the next person who's doing the best political interviews or whatever it is, and there is just isn't there anymore, then you you know the long term effects of that are going to be very negative. So I'm you know I'm afraid it's not it's not a great story. Yeah, well you've written a book that combines the sort of BBC dramas with the political interview through the decades and it is fascinating but i must just ask you at the end i you tweeted that you had parkinson's i missed the tweet so you've got sort of amidst all of the things going on at the bbc you've got uh, I, uh parkinson's I, I i don't know if it's stress related <laughs> it, but it's obviously something you want to talk about because you've included it in the book yeah I, I mean i think i think the reason i included it in the book was because i suppose for me the main impact of it was that and I think people who, who diagnose with different things might feel this. In a way, I sort of felt the danger was I was done as a consequence of having this being diagnosed with Parkinson's. That it was sort of over, um, and I was written off. I'd be written off, and I'd be regarded as somebody who sort of was over the hill and couldn't contribute anything. And I mean, the numbers of people who are the, you know, the number of diagnoses of Parkinson's are going up all the time, and so people are going to have to live with this condition and they'll continue, they'll need to work and they'll need to contribute and they've got a lot to offer. So I thought it was important having for a long, well, not for a long time, for a year, not told anybody to just go public about it. But that's not to suggest that it was me being high-minded and helping, wanting to help the world. It was for my own benefit because when you're nursing that sort of secret, really, 
um, it's not good for the soul. It's better to be open and upfront about it. Uh, and that's what I decided in the end to do. And, um, you know, Sky News, where I work currently with Beth Rigby, who is another fantastic interviewer, um, you know, they've been incredibly supportive and recognised that I'm still who I am, despite the fact I've now got this um, scary sounding condition. So anyone who's listening, you know, who has it or knows people and family members and loved ones, you know, it's important to remember it's not the end of the end of something, the end of your life. It's just a new chapter that you, you can you can adjust to. And actually, strangely, it can all, almost make you more positive about what you want to do because you recognize that it's maybe later than you think. Well, uh, Rob, buddy, really good luck with the book because um, um, I know you'll be doing a lot around it. And thank you so much for sparing the time to reflect on what remains, I think, such an important part of politics, the interview, <laughs> which uh, it's been part of your career and is, is so important. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So there we are. That's uh, Rob Burley there on his new book, which focuses in on the political interview. It seems to me that the political interview is in kind of deep crisis, frankly, at the moment. Um, for the first time, really, since I've been hooked on politics, I don't bother with the uh, Sunday programmes at all. And the Sunday programmes don't really stand out anymore because they don't opt for the uh, long-form interview, as Rob and I were discussing. They're really no more different to the endless political interviews you get during the week. Average duration, five, six minutes, if that. Um, and uh, there is a sort of another problem of supply, really. There aren't many fascinating politicians with a kind of determination or freedom to explore themes relatively openly as there was in the 70s and 80s and to a lesser extent but still to some extent in the uh, 90s and the sort of less commitment really to politics and a recognition of the excitement of politics at the BBC there's a kind of machismo down market machismo about uh, giving the people what they want. And I think the model program for them is Question Time, where you fix up five panellists, all who get about three minutes each in total, to have a kind of row, which you then put out on Twitter. Whereas actually the kind of joy and drama of politics is uh, when you delve a bit deeper and explore the dilemmas that politicians face, the kind of motives they have. And when you go down that route, you get more out of them as well. And when you have that kind of discursive tone, um, there is a kind of another issue as well, which we've discussed here on the uh, podcast many times, that uh, uh, too many of the interviews treat politics almost like an accountancy exam, where the interviewer tries to set all the tax and spend traps for Labour politicians. Oh, but then you will have a black hole and how will you raise the money to put the money into that black hole based on the projected spending plans for 2027? Um, it turns off every listener. It leads uh, uh, to a sort of stifling debate about what is possible via democratic politics in terms of delivering better 
public services. And um, I think, you know, though uh, Rob was a fantastic asset to the BBC because of his love of the political interview and politics, even in his era, there was that tendency to buy into the George Osborne framing of the deficit, whereby, you know, the test was how would any politician meet the objective of wiping out the deficit in a single term, an objective that Osborne didn't meet. But Ed Miliband and Ed Balls in particular just could not find a way out of that particular trap in sort of putting the Keynesian case for uh, spending to boost economic growth that in, in turn helps to wipe out the deficit partly their fault, but partly the focus on an acceptance of that particular thesis. Um, anyway, it's, it's in crisis, but Rob reflects uh, in his book in a fascinating way of the political interview in its sort of glory phase, really, which was the 70s and early to mid 80s, I think was the sort of great phase for the political interview. And he begins with one of them, the Brian Warden interview of Thatcher as she was moving towards her ultimate fall. So there we are. Uh, Thanks for listening and uh, see you again when we gather uh, at the beginning of next week to make sense of it all. There's a heck of a lot going on. And oh yeah, don't forget, you can still get tickets for the live show at King's Place, which is on this coming Monday, May the 15th. Uh, Hope to see uh, many of you there as We reflect on the new political landscape, what form it is taking, and with what consequences. We will have some laughs en route. Okay, hope to see a lot of you there. Uh, And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.